Perverted. Brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hey everybody, welcome to the Afroverted podcast dedicated to promoting African opinions on global and local events. I'm your host, Victor Anakin, and I wonder if any of you have ever thought of why news outlets like BBC and CNN and the like often take a single side of an armed dispute. What is the reason for the bias of Western media when it comes to reporting on conflicts such as the one in Ukraine and the Israeli-Palestinian escalation? For example, the said Western media clearly side with Israel. This is so obvious whilst portraying Palestine to be the center of terrorism and anti-Semitism. Another example is that you won't find any mention of former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson talking Ukraine out of peace talks with Russia back in 2022. And this information came straight from the lips of Ukraine's top politician, David Arachamir, in an interview. And this is exactly what we're going to be discussing in today's episode. Of course, to take all of these complicated issues apart, I'm joined by Professor Mandela Radebe, who's an associate professor in the Department of Strategic Communication and is also the director of the University of Johannesburg Center for Data and Digital Communications. As we explore the reasons for media bias of Western news outlets, we're going to discuss media imperialism and find the answer to South Africa's westernized media reporting. Let's get straight to it. Professor Adebe, welcome to the Afroverted podcast and thank you for joining me today. Now, as you surely have heard, a group of BBC journalists has accused this UK broadcaster of bias and double standards in covering the escalation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, arguing that more attention is paid to the Jewish state's victims. My question to you is, does the bias of the BBC and other Western mainstream media surprise you? to any degree? No, I'm not surprised uh, at all. Uh, Here at home in South Africa, uh, South Africa's premier weekend uh, newspaper, the Sunday Times, had a huge uh, front page uh, picture this past Sunday uh, on an old, um, the picture had an old uh, Israeli woman and a young boy who also happens, happens to be Israeli. They were being handed over to the International um, Committee of the Red Cross uh, by what was described as uh, Hamas militiamen under the heading Freedom at Last. Uh, part of the caption read that hostages were being who, who were being had been abducted by Hamas uh, were being um, by Hamas gunmen during uh, October seven. The attack on Israel were being handed over uh, by Hamas uh, militants, you know, so underline the word um, uh, militants uh, to the International Committee of Red Cross, uh, as I've already said, uh, uh, as part of the prisoner swap uh, deal. The, the picture deliberately does not show the fact that there are a number of Palestinian hostages that were kept by the Israeli you will, you will told it's an army that has been killing uh, people. So uh, this is part of of my view of the, of the biases. I mean, this picture for me confirms your question that the Western media, of course, the South African media falls within the term um, because of its history, ownership, control. Um, this media is, is indeed uh, biased. Um, I'm certainly not surprised uh, since uh, numerous studies have demonstrated that the commercialized um, media uh, 
marginalized uh, alternative and counter-hegemonic uh, voices, partly due to its uh, location uh, in the capitalist uh, uh, power uh, power structures. Okay, thanks, Prof. It's a good introduction. So why is um, Western journalism losing its objectivity? Well, um, part of the problem, uh, in my humble opinion, is that uh, gen- this uh, journalism and therefore the journalists uh, function within uh, the Western news values, uh, but fundamentally within the neoliberal paradigm. Uh, hence the reporting uh, on ideological discourses uh, as well as contentious uh, issues. Uh, this uh, journalism often will delegitimize uh, the concerns uh, of the dispossessed uh, people. Uh, here we're talking about the people in Palestine in particular. But also importantly, uh, for me, uh, there is this uh, a notion of liberal Uh, liberalism within journalism, uh, which, in my view, prioritizes um, individual rights and ignores the the systemic uh, problems. It is the ideology of uh, telling both sides of the story, even when the two sides are unequal. One is an oppressor, the other is the oppressed, and is uh, in the case of many challenges in the world, including the Palestinian problem. On the other hand, it's the the ideological foundation of this journalism, um, um, which is supposed to be unbiased and neutral, uh, and uh, finally makes the most uh, biased form uh, of journalism. I mean, it's the first um, media where we learned uh, of embedded journalism during the first uh, Iraqi invasion. So logically, uh, neutrality, which often uh, indicates the element uh, of bias, uh, we're told that this journalism uh, drives neutrality. It's because uh, media coverage uh, on on contentious issues uh, are not uh, incidental, rather, are informed by the choices that are made by journalists. So objective and subjective factors as an individual, they come into you and when you make uh, those choices. Therefore, it is important to note that the neutral stories uh, that this journalism journalism will tell us about, they adopt uh, what many scholars um, uh, would have characterized as description bias. Uh, This is why the media avoids unpacking underlying causes uh, on important issues. And this is extremely largely the case uh, in the Palestinian situation. So fundamentally, the neutrality trope, um, what it does, it obscures the neoliberal biases, or let's call it the ideological biases. So these journalists uh, uh, who are then accusing this, uh, this media to be biased are not far off. Look, the BBC, as well as other uh, UK media outlets, even tabloids, uh, have preferred to remain silent on recent claims by senior Ukrainian lawmaker uh, David Arachamia that former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson was the one who convinced Kiev in 2022 not to negotiate with Moscow and carry on fighting instead. Does that strike you as odd? 
given that any British publication would have had to react to the mention of the former prime minister and either develop the story or try to refute it? No. One of, one of my studies I did, I did um, on the South African online uh, and commercial media and its coverage of the Ukrainian war, uh, it unraveled inherent uh, biases within the South African media. But one of the major findings they are linked to uh, its linkages uh, to the Western uh, media uh, through uh, its sources and how it therefore invariably exports uh, Western norms, standards, uh, standards, hegemonic narratives, and the worldview. This includes, as I've said, reliance on the Western sources uh, as a source of information in the coverage of the Ukrainian war. Uh, this therefore suggests that the Western media itself uh, has not been neutral and objective in its coverage uh, of the way of the war uh, in Ukraine. Instead, it takes uh, the NATO side and peddles that as objective story. Hence, there was a huge silence uh, when the Russia Russia media, uh, the Russian media outlets, uh, were castigated and shut down under the guise uh, of Putin's uh, propaganda machinery. Can we just imagine for a moment? Uh, if some parts of the world were to do the same, to mute CNN or BBC and render uh, these platforms irrelevant because we don't want to hear the alternative the truth that um, is being told in these platforms. Uh, I'm sure journalist organizations uh, would have been up in arms. So it is unsurprising to hear the allegations against the UK media. Um, but this bias is, uh, in my view, are largely driven by this media's location within the global capitalist power structures. Uh, in uh, in our context in South Africa, it manifests through the, what I would call the continuation of media imperialism. Sometimes the best way uh, bias views are expressed is by uh, muting the alternative uh, and dissenting uh, voices. So this is a good strategy. Just pretend that you don't see it. And uh, to what degree does this allude to an sort of an unspoken ban on discussing certain topics which could apply to most media without exception? It, it's always the case. Remember, as I've said, that journalists uh, have got uh, the agency of deciding to choose what me and you, uh, uh, sometimes as consumers, as see, sometimes hear. So that agent, that 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 agency um, uh, is very important. It was in sometimes uh, muting the voices. So the voices that are not heard uh, are as important as the voices that have been heard in any story. So uh, that is very important. All right, thanks, Prof. You've touched on the way the conflict in Ukraine is covered in South African media. Could you perhaps go into more detail and explain to what extent is the presentation of the events influenced by the position of the European and American media? Um, as I've already indicated, that the is one of the studies I think I, I did was on the the commercial. Uh, online uh, news media and the coverage of the Ukrainian war. Um, and I think that this, the first obviously as expected, is that this war will be covered in a negative and portrayed in a negative light, largely because of its impact on the global markets and therefore the imports 
that uh, the South Africans and the African market uh, will be largely looking for. But of course, the upside is that we have seen a huge uh, demand of the coal uh, supply from South Africa. It would be interesting <clears throat> in my follow-up study to see how uh, these are therefore uh, uh, perceived. It is now what have become a positive spin-off. So of course, with their negative uh, impact in the South African market. In the coverage that you're referring to, the Western dominant voices are disenabled uh, due to the chosen sources. So the South African, I mean, yeah, the South African media largely to understand this uh, this war, they rely on Western news wires, I mean, the likes of Bloomberg, Reuters, AFP. Similarly, the opinions of political leaders, business leaders, including a business and economic um, analysts from the West are used to shape uh, the war. And again, these are largely perpetuating and advancing the NATO perspective. So while it is uh, expected for stories to be framed uh, in a conflict uh, perspective, it is the economic uh, consequence frame that drive uh, the coverage of um, uh, of this war and Expectedly, Russia is blamed uh, as reflected um, in the predominant themes that will emerge, such as Russia's unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine and so on and so forth. So the South Africa's media is influenced and basically what it does, it peddles and perpetuates the views of the West in the coverage of this war. All right, and that said, what are the underlying reasons for this reproduction of Western discourse? Is it simply uh, because it's easier for journalists to target mainstream uh, publications and news outlets, or are there deeper economic, political, and cultural reasons for that? Well, I, I think your question is correct to be a bit nuanced because you have to be nuanced to understand the, the bit of the history, the context of the South African media. And I think all these points that you are raising in your question are important because firstly, um, the, the historical perspective of the South Africa's media and its journalism is definitely linked to the Western traditions in terms of culture, even the language that um, is often used in this media platform. Secondly, my view is that is uh, ideological reasons. Uh, if you look at the post-apartheid uh, media reconfiguration in South Africa, it reconfigured along a liberal consensus which sort of emphasized what you told the independence of media from government and a free market environment, uh, which is then the, should the media conduct um, its business. It is interesting though that uh, uh, still um, the fundamental control of the economy and therefore by extension, the control of those who control the media and the top management structures uh, are still linked to the, the historical colonial uh, uh, settlement patterns uh, in South Africa. And therefore, that is why then you see uh, these patterns of coverage still coming, uh, uh, coming out. There's been a recent studies that demonstrate, uh, including the management structures of the news, is controlled and fundamentally the economic base uh, sort of influences uh, that. So hence I have, I constantly argue that where this media is located in terms of the power structure, its location, 
uh, in the power structure of capitalism, uh, its economic base has some level of influence on uh, on the superstructure, on the media superstructure, and therefore how then this uh, media frames and, uh, and covers uh, quite a number of uh, interesting issues. Uh, thanks, Prof, for taking that apart for listeners. Um, in some of your articles, you use the, the term media imperialism. Uh, could you maybe tell our listeners what this is and by what means is this new kind of imperialism being established and imposed around the world? So media imperialism is an old concept that uh, sort of to understand uh, um, the, the, the political imperialism, if I can use the concept, uh, that was unfolding, uh, affecting most of the developing uh, world. Essentially, this concept uh, denotes the operations uh, of the modern media uh, to create uh, as well as to maintain and expand the systems uh, of domination because that's what imperialism is about, uh, extraction and dominate. Media imperialism, therefore, has been uh, useful um, for many media scholars, including myself, in articulating the manner in which the global media system operates um, as something, you know, as transnational agents, uh, either as corporations or as media industries to direct the flow of uh, media products and um, at an international scale. So then when I talk about media products, I'm talking about the flow of information. This is what we're talking about, uh, what uh, your audiences can can listen, can hear. I therefore argue that um, while uh, these all features uh, of media imperialism, such as um, the uh, control uh, of ownership structure and the distribution of uh, Western powers is waning because there, there is a change. I mean, there's a rise of uh, China, for example, uh, the emergence of platform uh, of platform imperialism, which is still controlled largely by the West, actually by the West, uh, and this combined with a difficult economies, uh, economic environment globally, um, have compelled local uh, media, uh, such as the ones you'll find in South Africa, to rely and to continue to rely on Western news agencies for content uh, on international news because it will be extremely expensive for a newsroom in South Africa to send journalists uh, to Ukraine, for example, to understand the war from their own perspective. Even for uh, for developments that, uh, by the way, are taking place within the African continent, uh, which is vast and quite expensive to travel. Due to this uh, financial uh, and lack of financial resources, uh, national news agencies, what they are do, they are then forced to rely on Western agencies for content, which is quite um, quite bizarre if you think about it. So this would include the use of Western media platforms, such as the globe, um, uh, 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 the big global networks, uh, newspapers and newswires as sources of news. You you'll be listening to the South African Broadcasting Corporation news product, and suddenly you are told so and so from BBC is reporting. In this way, what happens is that the dominant Western views are therefore perpetuated in the process. Um, the, the hegemony is therefore constructed and reconstructed. Um, these are some of the features, what I, I will call the features of media imperialism that have emerged, uh, uh, that are re-emerging 
in the recent studies. But the biggest, the biggest point I'm raising in my view, uh, in conclusion, is that the economic base uh, is what perpetuates media imperialism. And, 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 and it is through that uh, economic base that the ideas of the dominant classes, the dominant sections of the world, the dominant views of the empire, are perpetuated and distributed to to the developing world. Great, Prof. Thank you very much. That's a very, a very, very clear explanation. I'm sure that um, the listeners that are listening clearly understood what you're talking about. Um, how can then South Africa and Africa as a whole, in fact, fight against this imperialism and gain genuine information sovereignty? Well, in my view, the this. The struggles, the national liberation struggles across the African continent were fundamentally fight for sovereignty. Uh, was in, or they, they were essentially anti-imperialist in their character. And in my view, um, as many uh, political activists in South Africa would argue, uh, the struggle is not over. In fact, in South Africa, the, the governing party the African National Congress and its alliance partners, the South African Communist Party, they often talk about the national, what, what, the concept of the national democratic revolution. Uh, of course, this concept is often often uh, misunderstood because of its Leninist uh, lineage. But um, when they speak about this concept, this concept is about resol- resolving the intractable challenges that South Africa is faced with. And therefore, the ANC will talk about the second phase, which is which would be more radical. Which therefore must talk about fundamentally about economic transformation, which is still in the hands of the minority in South Africa. This, in my view, requires um, inter alia the building of strong, independent, but most importantly, demo decommodified media platforms in uh, in the African continent as the platforms for fight against oppression, fight against domination, but also being the platforms for solidarity because it is through solidarity that as human, as humanity, uh, the humanity, uh, the human race can survive. Uh, so I think for me, those are some of the important platforms that must be, uh, that must be driven and perpetuated in the African continent. Then how can media cooperation within the framework of BRICS, for example, or with Russia or China that you've mentioned in particular, help in the struggle against media imperialism? Well, I think for me, uh, bits and parts are already happening uh, in the African continent, but um, I think it's logical that the next uh, step, uh, the the consolidation of the media along the BRICS line is a logical next step. Um, that will be useful to building and consolidating BRICS plus um, in the context of uh, cultural exchange, uh, information flow on an equal footing must be consolidated. So I think absolutely BRICS and the role of media in BRICS is something that must be taken seriously. Not the formalized commercialized media that are controlled by the capitalists, a few uh, whose interest is to perpetuate uh, extraction capitalism, neoliberal neoliberal capitalism, and all forms of capitalism to accumulate for their own sake. Talking about the equal media that will be used 
for distribution and redistribution of resources on an equal basis so that uh, humanity can grow and be able to sustain and also defend our planet uh, from all form of degradation, I mean, degradations. Uh, I mean, if you look at um, global warming is a reality in South Africa, it's been hot and then it's cold in, in, in summer, so it's very, some important questions. So contrary to the popular view that the media flow between China and Africa has not has, has been one directional, the effect of the matrix that research shows that this has not been the case. I mean, an example is uh, here in South Africa where media companies such as NASPAS have been uh, inv investing through platforms such as Tencent in China. Uh, so there's been a, a two-way flow of information between uh, South Africa and China, and I think that should be expanded. This is unlike the what I, we have been talking about just recently, mm -hmm. the continuation uh, flow of information along the North-South perspective, the Global North pushing its information to the Global South, and the Global South is unable to do the same. Uh, so in, uh, BRICS gives us an opportunity to ensure that there is a two-way flow of information as well as cultural exchanges and all those sort of things so that there is no domination of one culture by that. Right. Prof, you've mentioned the ban of certain Russian media in South Africa, and this clearly comes as an offshoot of the ban of RT and Sputnik, uh, which are Russian media in the West. Can we say that the West has resorted to the last tool to maintain the information dominance since they're losing the usual, you know, ordinary competition and people now want to get an objective picture of the world from different sources. Oh, well, in the, in the world we live in, digitized world, globalized world, world information is very important. Information is key. Um, and uh, you can only ban uh, when you are only seeking to advance propaganda or wanting to advance your own advantage at the expense of the others. It is illogical for me. You know, if uh, th there are various platforms where I just watch and I just get so annoyed because I, you can hear that this is just pure propaganda, but I will not advocate for their shutdown, that they should be shut down because it will be uh, illogical because you want to have all these views uh, being put out there. But of course, unless the views that are perpetuated are extremely dangerous views that are driving hatred, hate speech um, against uh, people of different sexual orientation, people of different races and all those sort of things. But if they don't do that, uh, why ban them? To an extent that the media had uh, has succeeded um, in portraying um, this is the Western media now I'm talking about, in portraying the NATO war. By the way, NATO is a war alliance, it's a war machinery. It's not a peaceful, but this media has been able to portray NATO in peaceful terms. Um, if we're interested in global peace, uh, in global stability, uh, well, why would we be building NATO, these alliances that are based on wars and all those things? Of course, in any war, if you're interested in war, propaganda is crucial and information is crucial. So in my view, they can afford to look um, um, and now the West and this media, they can afford to look the other way 
when there is a genocide that is unfolding right before our eyes in Palestine, it is precisely because of this ability to control information. Um, thank God for this alternative uh, media platforms, including social media. Otherwise, we will not know of the genocide that is taking place in Palestine and in other parts of the world, of the world, by the way, because the war is not a war in Ukraine. There's so many wars in Africa. There's so many wars in the, in the Middle East. And we need to as many voices as possible to show us this information and to ban them is the most backward stance is a most um, undemocratic stance you can take if you're someone who's perpetuating and advocating for democracy. Thank you very much, Prof. Prof, just a, a quick follow-up, literally my last question, so I won't take up too much of your time. Just jumping back to this issue of the Western media being silent on the Ukrainian lawmaker clearly stating that former Prime Minister Boris Johnson was the one who convinced Kiev last year to not negotiate with Moscow and keep on participating in armed conflict with Russia. Why is the West interested in, you know, not shedding light on this issue? Are they afraid of something, perhaps? What are your thoughts on this? Well, unfortunately, I don't, I, I, mean, I mean, I would love to follow up on that story, because it sounds like a very explosive uh, story that here is a former prime minister advocating uh, being against anti-peace when everyone wants peace. But the fact of the matter is that even when the war started, the biggest, the first stance the West took was to block information flow uh, so that we could only hear one side of the story. Uh, as they say, you know, the old adage goes, the first casualty of war is the truth. Uh, so we needed to hear these stories. But of course, the West is not interested uh, in portraying the alternative alternative perspective, uh, because it does not want to, the world to see the, the the views of Putin that could position him in uh, in good light and present him as an alternative. Because basically, what what we're going back here, we're going back to almost the Cold War situation, you know that people are forced to choose sides. And uh, unfortunately, quite a number of um, progressive people, uh, I can now talk about um, from a Global South perspective and African perspective, are sort, sort of understanding Putin. Uh, I don't want to use the word support because it might be misunderstood, but they don't, definitely don't support NATO, but they understand uh, where Putin is coming from. And uh, this is exactly what the West does not want uh, by uh, not uh, writing about these stories, by hiding this information, and instead uh, driving nothing else but propaganda that we must just hear one side of the story, and that's it. Prof, thank you very much for joining me today and taking apart these seemingly obvious yet intricate issues. 
As Professor Radebe said, decommodified media platforms across Africa is way out from under the hegemony of the West's tight grasp on African media outlets. Professors also highlighted the role BRICS could play in redistributing the media resources to get more diverse and pluralistic reporting on various events, especially including armed conflicts. As in most conflicts, the roots run deep into history and is really a case of right versus wrong. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something genuinely new. If you'd like to give the episode another go, check it out on various podcasting platforms such as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, Cosbox, as well as AfriPods. Stay informed by checking out our Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, TikTok account, and other socials. But for longer analyses, go ahead to our Sputnik Africa website. And to access all this info quickly and conveniently, make sure to download the Sputnik Africa application. Never stop searching for the truth and stay up to date. I'm your host, Victor Anakin, and it was my pleasure speaking to all of you. Until next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.